Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab number 340 premium for Friday, July 8th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here somewhere in New England, John F. Braun. I'm getting more specific. Good. That's good. So you were narrowing it right down. So, so I'll, I'll get down to longitude and latitude. Exactly. That's what, that's what we expect. And here so. in a different part of Durham, New Hampshire, not the exact same place as Dave, because that would hurt. <laughs> that would be physically impossible, Pete. <laughs> yes, it would. It's uh, Pilot Pete. And did you say premium? This is premium. Oh, so the good listeners are with us today. The, the good listeners are always with oh, us. There you See, go. See, that's the thing. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah. They're always, that's the thing. Um, yeah. All right. I had something and then you, and then I, I lost it. Threw your curveball. Uh, You're still yeah. on vacation. In the shin with I'm still in vacation mode. This is weird coming back from vacation on a Thursday afternoon and then, uh, and then working on Friday, but I had to come back cause we had to get a podcast out and I uh, had a couple other things to do. And plus I've got to, you know, I've got to get at least like eight or nine days of work in this month. So that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, well, then do it. All right. Let's uh, let's dive right in here. Let's let's see what we get. And do a half gainer. We'll start with uh, we'll start with Seth. Seth wrote us asking about he said he wanted to get the font menus in his favorite word processing apps to uh, display the fonts in their own typefaces. Now, uh, he noted that if you go into pages, You'll see the fonts in their in their typeface, but he said when he went into Microsoft Word, they were not there, and uh, we found a way to turn this on. So normally, uh, and it can go one way or the other. You can either have the fonts just listed uh, as just their name in a standard uh, typeface, or you can have them listed in their name displayed in their individual typeface. And in Word, to turn that option on or off. You go to uh, the Microsoft Word menu, of course, preferences, general, and then there's an option called WYSIWYG font and style menus. This is in Word 2011, uh, and, and that seems to, uh, to turn it right on and off. In pages, I did not find a way to turn it off. It is always on, uh, John, unless you found something. No. All right. We're going to crank through a couple of these and get it. See if we can get back into the swing of things. It's been a week and a half. Since I mean, podcast. I mean, the other option in general. Yeah. Because uh, I don't know if that dogs your system out a bit. I, I know they, they, they they're a third party utility because it has to render each. I mean, if they're all preloaded and stuff like that or cache, then I suppose it won't dog you out too much. But it has right. to draw everything individually rather than a single font. Now, of course, the other option is you, you can find your pal font book. Okay. With every Mac and uh, and that'll show you what all your fonts look like. So that's that's an option that'll always work. Though so not maybe not quite as handy, right? But I, I like FontBook for a number of reasons. Do you want to share one one or two of those other reasons, John? Um, it, it does some level of diagnostics as well. It can identify uh, yeah, if you're starting to have font problems. It can identify, I, I believe, corrupt fonts, uh, duplicate fonts, yeah, things like that. Uh, what does it have? I forget if it's called Font First Aid or. Uh, 
I mean, I'm looking at it now, but it, but it definitely has because one problem is sometimes if for whatever reason you have software in a piece of software that doesn't check and in, it installs another font, the system may get confused as to which one to use. Got it. So in addition to showing you what they will look like, it can uh, it can give you the ability to uh, resolve duplicates cool. and and find some other problems. Cool. All right. Wes writes. My iMac Safari is using the Adobe Reader plugin, as John talked about. My question is, how would I change uh, so that the plugin is no longer used and the Apple engine is used to preview or to view PDFs instead? I never did consciously choose to, to use the Adobe option and might like to undo this. Uh, John, you want to take this one? Yes, I will take this one. So Good. first, you may be asking yourself, where are Internet plugins stored? And I will tell you, there are two places that I know of. So one is slash library. So starting at the top slash library slash internet plugins, which I believe are global for any user. And in the case of PDF, what I found is there is a plugin called Adobe, Adobe PDF viewer dot plugin. And if you whack that, I don't believe there's a, a way to uninstall just that. I think it, it by default is installed along with the, uh, with the Adobe reader. You can, but you can, you can not install that when you uh, it's it. Ha I think I think it happens when you launch Adobe Reader for the first time. It'll say uh, your your uh, web browsers are configured to use Safari. Do you want or to configured to use uh, preview? Do you want them to use Apple uh, Adobe's engine instead? And you can choose yes. And the reason I know this is because I don't let it install Adobe's engine. And it asks me every stinking time I launch Acrobat Reader. So. Oh, that's annoying. Yeah, yeah. The, some programs are very persistent in trying to make you do it their way. Um, of course, the way to, to deal with it is to go into that folder and just whack that plug in. I think that does it right. I mean, it, did you test that, John? Get, just getting rid of that plug in that way. Undo it for you. Yeah, it, okay. uh, it, the, the, the reader did not come up. So that's yeah, it's not a nice way of doing it. I prefer if there was a way to uninstall. Right using their program. I, I wasn't is, able to find a way to do that. There is no way in the preferences for Acrobat reader. And I'll, I'll check that out while you, uh, yeah, you want me to, uh, you want me to start. <clears> but that's the way about, I did it. Okay. That's the way I did it directly is yeah. I just whacked that. Uh, I suppose it could also be. So the other place uh, that, that you may see internet plugins is of course your home directory slash library slash internet plugins. There may be some there that I believe are specific to you, you know, that user account. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, but you found the Acrobat plugin in the uh, top level library yes. folder. Slash okay. library slash internet plugins, Adobe PDF viewer dot plugin. Okay. And you'll know your browser is using that because if you go to, uh, you know, Safari, for example, and you go to the help menu and you say installed plugins, you will see that plugin listed as one as one that handles PDF files. Got it. All right. Well, that's good to know. I, that's uh, and, and to remove it, quit your browsers, uh, then go delete that plugin. And then when you relaunch your browser, it's just going to come up and, and at that point forward, it'll use Apple's uh, default PDF viewer engine, which is the same engine that you get in preview and mail and all of that stuff. Yeah. Now, actually, I'm noticing something here, Dave. Yeah. Well, I, I notice I notice many things. Yeah, we know. So, most of the time it's good, though. No, this is good. <laughs> most of the time it's actually relevant. Yeah. So in Adobe Reader, I see in the Adobe Reader menu about Adobe plugins. Ah, okay. Oh, no, these are Adobe Reader plugins. Okay, I don't believe these are browser plugins. Okay. Oh, so this gets even more interesting. 
Well, no, no, you know, internet it's... access plugin. No, I'll, I'll I'll poke around a little bit more, but I, I don't believe the Adobe Reader gives you a way to disable the plugin. Huh? That's surprising. They should. You'd think that they would. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask before when we started the show, but I and and I am recording this one, so in theory everybody's going to hear this. But are you recording our backup version, John? <sighs> see now i am okay good it's just <laughs> you didn't tell me to i know it's just it, that's like i said we're a little out of <laughs> out of sync and uh and i raced us into making sure we started the show by uh started recording no. the show by 3 30 p.m eastern daylight time so uh so that's what i that's what i had in my mind all right uh we have a bunch of questions about backups and we'll see if it makes sense to do them all together here uh bill writes uh, i need to back up a mac server running snow leopard 10.6 can you suggest backup software i've looked at super duper and i've also looked at something called sync from decimus.net my objective is to make a bootable copy to be backed up over the weekends for my school that does not have a lot of money okay um fine so there are a couple of different uh different options here super duper will create a clone on demand uh which means that you've got to set a schedule and, and it will only copy uh, when you tell it to, which in your case uh, would serve your purpose, Bill. Uh, Sync, S-Y-N-K, for those of you that are going to choose to Google it, but we'll have a link in the show notes and in the enhanced AAC. Uh, Sync is, is, is something that runs all the time and actively keeps a backup going. So anytime a file is modified, it is uh, automatically synced out. And, and both of these... Uh, do support the option of making those backups bootable. So depending on how you want to do it, uh, super duper or, or sync would, would work uh, for at both of those are, are for pay uh, options. There is of course, carbon copy cloner, which I believe is still free. Um, and I, I see no reason why that would not work as well. I'm a super duper guy. I've always used super duper, uh, I like its features and I like the way that it works. But John, I know you have had equal luck with uh, with Carbon Copy Cloner yes. for, for your purposes. And <clears throat> I don't know if our purposes are exactly the same on that, uh, but, you know, it certainly suffices. Right. Well, it does. Ha- yeah. And it does have. So I looked in Carbon Copy Cloner and in the Carbon Copy Carbon Copy Cloner menu yep. is a scheduled tasks option. Okay. So you could certainly set it up to on a regular basis, do a backup. You have to select, of course, your source and destination first, but then I, I don't see any reason why you can't use carbon copy cloner. Right. I, I tried it. I've never had a problem with it. And and yes, it does make bootable backups. Good. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. Uh, next backup question from Dan. Hello, Dave, John and Pete. This is Dan from San Antonio, Texas. Hope you are doing well. My question is concerning backups, uh, specifically off-site backups. Uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, after you guys recommended, I bought a Drobo, a four-bay Drobo. Now, currently, I have uh, quite a bit of storage, but what I want to back up is, are just my pictures, family pictures and videos. Nice. I, I, tr- I checked and tried a few online um vendors which are like mosey and dropbox but they're really slow to upload as well as uh restore uh, all that information i thought about possibly purchasing another drobo which is a little pricey and putting that over at my friend's house but that brings up another issue and that is uh an application i'm not sure of any application that i can do an initial backup and then once i 
install that drobo out of my friend's house which is across town uh, will do incremental backups and actually he should be able to back up my way as well that way we can both have some type of redundancy there in case of fire theft uh, hopefully you guys can uh, give me some recommendations on how to do that and uh, you guys have a great day and this is where you cut me off you got it dan all right so uh sync which of course we mentioned in uh the previous question would uh would work for for you in a in a local sense um dropbox would uh would work for your remote sense but but unfortunately with dropbox you have to have uh storage on the server as on the in in their cloud server uh, as well as storage at your friend's house. So you've got to pay for that. However, uh, you mentioned Mosey and, and, uh, and a couple of the others that are the kind of the online backup services. Well, crash plan has a very, which is another online backup service has a very interesting option. You can download crash plan free is what they call it. And that does not let you back up to their cloud storage because you're not paying for their cloud storage, but they will let you have the app for free. And you can do exactly what you described. You can set up a hard drive. Uh, I think you can do the initial backup to it locally and then put the drive at your friend's house. And now crash plan will do incremental backups back and forth. So your friend, you know, and you have to set up permissions for this. And of course, but, uh, but you can set up backups back and forth and uh, you can, you know, do your incremental backups over the internet to, uh, to your friend's house and your friend can do it to your house. The nice part about this, in addition to simply being free, uh, other than the cost of the storage, which you guys have to pay for, um, what it allows you to do is you know where your data is and it's not stored in somebody's cloud server. You're not subject to, uh, you know, whatever their terms of service of the week are. And uh, and and, you know, it's just between you and your friend. So uh, that that may be an option. So check out Crash Plan. That that might that might get you a whole lot of what you're looking for. And then some, so have you, you haven't, uh, you haven't messed around with any of that. Have you, John? Um, just Dropbox. Really? Let okay. me mention uh, typical Mac user podcast, George Starcher and Victor Cahiao did an entire episode dedicated to crash plan. And I forget what the other one was, uh, probably four or five episodes ago. Okay. So that, that would be a good resource to mm. go listen to. All right, cool. We will find that and uh, and put it in the show notes too. No, I did Thank change you. how I back my things up to Dropbox, though. Really? Well, you, you know, there's been a little chatter. Um, they, among others, have been changing their terms of service. But sure. I, this was something I, I thought I should do anyways. So I think you should be concerned with any cloud service. So what I did is I changed. So rather than just dragging my entire documents folder or portions of it over to my Dropbox folder. Which is what I do. So I'm very curious now. Yes. Oh, well, I created a password protected sparse bundle. A secure. Yeah. Yeah. So now. And not only if is that, someone happens to come across that, what they will need. Well, what they need is the password. So if they don't know the password, then all they're going to see is uh, all they would be able to do between is between one this. and four on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, but, but, but what came up with uh, their change in terms of service, which, uh, in my opinion, a lot of people misinterpreted, was that in theory, anyone could, depending on how you read it, anybody could come along and just grab your stuff from Dropbox. Of course, you know, if it's subpoenaed, then, yeah, that's valid. But, 
you know, some people were suggesting that just any random person, you know, whether they work for Dropbox or not, could just come across your stuff and grab it and look at it, which I suppose is always possible if anything is outside of your security perimeter, right. shall we call it. So in this case, unless they know my password. Yeah, even if they download the entire disk image, it doesn't matter. I mean, they could brute force it. You know, yeah. if, if uh, you know, if I have a crummy password, then yeah, then then they right. win. But right now right. it's a sparse bundle and I chose a sparse bundle because I believe I'll have to verify this, but it uh, well, I don't right. believe it's going to upload the whole the entire thing if I just change one piece of the sparse bundle. I'd be I'd be interested to hear if it does. It shouldn't. It should be able to do slices of that sparse bundle. That's uh, what I think. Initially, I did an image. And of course, the initial upload is always going to be the size of it, which I made it four gigabytes. OK, but, but I did subsequent minor changes and it only seemed to be changing a few little pieces. It, it didn't do the entire four gigabyte uh, image. Okay. So that may be oh, something that in general, anybody who's storing stuff in the cloud, you may want to consider something other than storing the raw files in the cloud. Let me, let me ask a question the, on well, that. When, okay, when ahead, you decrypt and you're using that, that image as if it's a, you know, another drive. Yeah. Is it then, is it at that point uploading files to, to Dropbox? And then when you obviously dismount the drive, it just goes back into the, the DMG and then erases the files that it sees in the clear? How, how does that... No, when you add something to the disk, either by right. resaving a file or by copying a new file to the disk, it is encrypted at that point. Right. Uh, so so whether or not the disk is mounted is sort of irrelevant with that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I see it. Yeah. Yeah, the data is always stored in an encrypted format. Does that right. make sense? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Which is good. So it's double encryption, actually, because their encryption is basically worthless. <laughs> because, well, it, it is what it is. For yeah. The sen- yeah, for yeah. the sense of yeah. security. Yeah. So um, that, now the, the drawbacks, and I realize we're off on a little bit of a tangent here, but, uh, but that's what we do. The drawbacks of that are that now the iPhone and iPad apps for, and, and web access with Dropbox is useless, right? You, if you need to get at one of your files uh, that's in that sparse bundle, you have to do it from, your, from one of your Macs or possibly from a Windows machine, but certainly you're not going to get to it from a mobile device or from the web. Correct. Okay. Because yeah. that's actually something... I wind up in situations often where I want I need I want to access some bit of data and it's in my documents folder and I can just pull up my iPhone and find it and it's right there and it's really handy. But uh, but there but it I realize it comes at the cost of security and that, you know, it, more and more I you know, you you all know me. I, I usually trade convenience, uh, prioritize convenience over security uh, in a huge way. But, uh, but you know, at some level, you got to give a nod to security. So I don't know. Yeah. For me, my primary purpose of doing this is to have yet another, to have, so one, of course I have my time capsule backup of my documents folder on my computer. This is to have another version of that. So yeah, my, my main purpose here is redundancy. It's not accessibility. Right. So I have another question about this. Uh, If you take that disc image that sparse bundle, right. That's mm-hmm. in your Dropbox and you mount it on both of your Macs, right? So on your Mac mini and also on your MacBook pro mm-hmm. and you save a file from your uh, Mac mini, does that file then just magically appear in your disc image on the MacBook pro immediately if it's already mounted or is there some OS level caching going on that kind of keeps that from happening? 
That's I'd be a curious. fantastic question. I'd be curious to know the answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, uh, so would I. Okay, cool. I, I, I think, I suspect it will, but yeah, I, have, I haven't tried that yet. I just okay. did this a couple of days ago. Of All course, right. the first time I goofed it and I created a static image, which of course that means every time it changes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, especially yes. because my upload pipe is, uh, you know, kind of, you know, it's only a 200. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, what is it? I'm sorry. Uh, two uh, megabits. Uh, two megabits. Right. Yeah. Two megabit up. So yeah, the, the uploading the initial four gigabyte sparse image. Uh, yeah. So a, keep a, us posted on that. Cause I, I, this is a curious, you know, it's a good solution to a problem, albeit with some limitations and it, it would be good to know the extent sure. of those limitations. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, while we're on the subject of backing up in Drobos, we're going to stick with this. Ross wrote during Mac Geek Up 339, Dave mentioned that he has his media on his Drobo. Uh, does Dave then back up the Drobo to another external drive or does he sleep easy knowing that the Drobos raid has built in special sauce that, to safeguard his media data? I guess this Drobo is, uh, is enough if there's only a single drive failure. Is that correct? So, yes, Ross, uh, you are correct that if there is only a single drive failure, that is enough. Uh, you can set up the Drobo, Drobo uh, at least newer versions of the Drobo, to protect against double drive failure. But you lose capacity uh, as you do that. However, uh, I am very blessed in that I don't have just one Drobo. I have two. And I have an original Drobo and now uh, the Drobo FS. And I use Drobo's Drobo copy, uh, which is uh, in their, their Drobo software. And I have that running on one of my Macs that's on all the time anyway. Uh, and I have that uh, sync my media folder once a week. It copies it from my main Drobo off to the, uh, to the original, from my Drobo FS off to the original Drobo. And, and you know, if that's not enough, uh, well, you know, yeah, if a mirror Drobo isn't going to get you. Well, you know, if, if the <laughs> yeah. place burns down, that's yeah. not going to work be, right. be, simply because I'm uh, it's in the same building. Now, of course, I have the ability, you know, with the house and the office wired together and, and there being what, about 75 feet between the two. I could put the other one in the other building and protect against, you know, all but catastrophic meltdown here. But uh, but I have not. So, yeah. So, yeah, it is my media library. This is a music library, mostly music, that I've built up over decades. And uh, and I don't want to lose it. It's actually, it would it would cost me a fortune in time to recreate it. Uh, and at least until uh, Apple's iTunes in the cloud comes around and then I'm all done. Then I'm totally good. It, mostly good anyway. So, All right. Uh, that's Ross. And yeah, you know, let's stick with, uh, let's stick with the Drobo stuff. And so we will go to... Uh, to John, who John's been emailing us for a while about some problems with his Drobo. And uh, and he's run into a problem most recently with occasionally, but can but consistently enough, the Drobo will suddenly be read only, or at least that's how his Mac sees it. John says, I looked through the console files and noticed that I'd restarted my Mac one hour before before the first reported read only state. I also noticed that my iPad had been plugged in on that occasion. I don't often plug in my iPad to reproduce the problem. I had my iPhone four iPad one and Drobo S plugged in when I did a restart after the restart, the iPad started syncing, but the iPhone didn't mount. I unplugged the iPhone and plugged it back in and it synced. 
I then looked in disk utility and it showed the following for the Drobo volume. Verify was the only option, not repair, and it wasn't the boot drive. For information about the volume in disk utility, it said writable, no. Supports journaling, yes. Journaled, no. I disconnected my iPad, left the iPhone 4 plugged in, and restarted the Mac Pro. After restart, the iPhone 4 synced with iTunes and disk utility. The Drobo showed as writable, yes. Journaled, yes. So it seems that this situation is due to some sort of conflict. My question is, are conflicts like this just a way of life? Or could it be due to some sort of hardware fault with my Mac Pro? Isn't it interesting that a device conflict like this could cause an external drive to mount as read-only and strange that it shows as not being journaled or that it simply, or is that a simply a consequence of being read-only? Uh, so for your very last question, I believe that's correct. When a drive is read-only, it can support journaling, but it is not journaled because the journal is something to which the file system must write. So I, I think those two are, are directly related. Uh, the other interesting part here is that his iPhone and iPad are plugged in USB, and he says that his Drobo is plugged in FireWire 800. My initial thought was that it was some sort of USB conflict as I read this, uh, because we've certainly seen those, especially with power draw with uh with something like an iPad, which draws twice as much, if not more power than the iPhone from the computer. So, but, uh, but assuming he's correct and, and please check John to make sure that your Drobo S is indeed FireWire 800 and not plugged in USB two. Uh, I'm a little bit at a loss. If it was USB, I'd say try a different bus and make sure you're using system profiler that all the devices are on separate buses. And I've certainly seen that with other hard drives. Um, where, you know, if you start drawing too much current or start overloading the bus, uh, it, it can cause funky things and, and jumping to a read only state is one of those. But uh, but if this is plugged in Firewire, I guess we've seen things where the Firewire and, and USB buses can conflict with each other, though. I mean, we, we've certainly seen that and, and had motherboard replacements happen in those cases that you have any thoughts on this, John? Mr. Braun, I mean, not really. OK. <clears throat> I'm not a Drobo type of guy yet. Well, no, I just mean, uh, you know, with, with the iPad, with the USB and FireWire causing, causing conflicts like this. Cause it, because I don't think it has anything to do with it being a Drobo, right? The system does not know that it's a Drobo. The system is just mounting the drive that it sees. So I, I think it's, it's sort of abstracted <laughs> from whatever the device is. I think it's more I mean, about. Uh, my yeah. only thought is that in general, USB or at least USB 2, uh, provides relatively less juice and you right. can certainly exceed the uh yeah exceed the bus capacity and the device should tell you that it should uh, you know normally we see that the os if all the devices are reporting what they draw properly it'll say whoa whoa you know right i i, I can't handle this and it shouldn't even try to mount it i, I suppose something could happen I, I did have a quick note here because you mentioned this thing about uh, i think ipad drawing a lot of current yeah well, a little follow-up. Quick okay. tangent, and then we'll come back. But a yeah. little follow-up. So remember we were talking about battery backups in the past, or, or yeah. chargers? Yeah. Now, someone had actually wrote in to me saying, well, you know what? I have a Richard Solo 1800, which is one of these external batteries. And he said, you know what? It doesn't work on the iPad 2. And I'm like, hmm. right. You know, I've heard this before. Because what he said is he plugged it in, and the iPad said not charging. Ah, very interesting. Now... Uh, and uh, so I did a little Google foo and I found an article, I believe it was at Macworld, which points out that just because when the device is on, it says this 
doesn't mean that if you turn it off, it won't charge. And so I said, you know what? Could you try this for me? I, I, I don't have the name of the person who did it. But he, in fact, verified that if the iPad was off and he plugged in this external battery, it did, in fact, charge the iPad. And that that's true with the iPad one as well. They they both. Yeah. Um, in order. They dry a lot of juice or they have pretty. Uh, you got to use the adapter that it comes with to get full. To, yeah. So you can use the what is it? The 10, 10 watt versus five watt adapter. Is that right? Uh, if you're using a five watt adapter, which is what you will get from a lot of these third party chargers as well as when you're plugged directly into your Mac, if you're using one of those, it will charge slowly when the device is asleep. And, and I just wanted to correct you there, John, not off. Uh, it will not charge when it's off. In fact, if you plug it in, oh, it will right. it will turn on. But uh, but when it when the screen is asleep, it will charge slowly on the five watt stuff. Uh, it with the uh but when you when you turn the screen on, it says up in the it, right next to the battery, it says not charging and and it is running off of bat of of uh, incoming current. But it is not going to be able to add much to the battery. It actually will because I've left mine open uh, during the day and it will trickle up, you know, over several hours. I might get, you know, another five to 10 percent on the battery, even though it says not charging. But but it's not coming in very quickly if I put the screen to sleep then it, it charges a whole lot faster. And that was true with both the iPad one and the iPad two. Uh, so, you know, with this thing, I, I wonder if having the iPhone four and the iPad on the same USB bus is causing a power drain that then might be causing some sort of weird uh, Drobo, you know, firewire or firewire um, issue. It's possible. You know, all this stuff is, is related on the, uh, on the motherboard. So at some level, I mean, it all has to come back in together. All the power has got to flow through the motherboard somehow. So that's my only thought. Pete, you had a... Uh, I, I did, actually. And this, this may be way way off, probably highly unlikely, but uh, has he tried other cables? Huh. That's always a good question. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah another FireWire 800 cable might might be the solution. You you might be barking up entirely the wrong tree, although I, I think he has. Yeah. Okay. I think he has. I just... Thought I'd ask because boy, it's kicked my butt before. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, that, that wraps up enough about backups. Let's uh, let's see what Andy has to ask. Hello, Dave, John, and sometime Pete. I have a quick question about Adobe Flash Player preference pane that I recently installed on my Macs. I installed the, this because it was said to be safer to get updates for Flash Player rather than wait for Apple to send us the Flash updates. After I first installed the Flash Player, I did get one update notification, but this has since then stopped. In the Flash Player preference plane that's in the preferences, you have the option to check for updates automatically, and this is set on by default. If you click on Check Now button, unfortunately, Adobe only sends you to their website where you can see if you have the most recent version of Adobe Flash running on your Mac. Then your only other choice is to read down a whole new Flash player there and uh, reinstall it onto your Mac. Now, the whole reason why I put this on my Mac system preferences was so that I can get Flash updates automatically, but this has now since stopped, and all my Macs have older versions of Flash on them since Adobe seems to update Flash often. Do you guys know how to force the Adobe Flash player 
in the preference plane to auto update again without having to re-download the player again every time there is some update. Love your show, and this is where you can cut me off. Sure, Andy. Uh yeah, so here's the thing about the the new version of the Flash player. Uh, it does have a preference pane, and you can tell it, and this is the important distinction, you can tell it to check for updates automatically, but it certainly will not apply those updates. In fact, even, and sometimes, like you found, sometimes it does tell you, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I found that to be inconsistent. It checks the first time Flash is used after reboot. So if you're not, that's been in my experience. So if you're not rebooting regularly, uh, it, it may not be checking for updates all that regularly. Uh, That that's what's, that's what's been consistent for me. But, but even when it tells you automatically that there is an update, it still just brings you to the Adobe website and you have to walk through the manual process yourself of downloading and, uh, and all of that stuff. That's, that's been my experience. So it's, it's not great, but at least it's an alert sometimes that there's an update, but, but you can go into the, uh, they, they do make it easy. Now, if you go into the system preferences and go into the Adobe flash player pref pane, uh, and click check for updates, it'll bring you to a website that not only tells you what the most recent version of flash flash is for your Mac, but also tells you what you have on there. So it, it, you can at least do a, you know, it requires some mental processing, but, but not very much, but then you got pull, to pull down the disc image and go through the whole happy. Ha ha. Is that what you found too, John? I'm going to tell you what I found. You ready? Yeah. Fish shake. <laughs> what are they doing? Why does any company develop their own update mechanism? So it's one, Adobe, I don't like this. John, pref- it's I know, Adobe. but the thing is, so, so one, I will admit that the pref pane is a step in the right direction because before what you had to do to configure flash was to bring up a special web page in your browser, which right. they made absolutely no sense. So Lita's is better, it's accessible, but my expectation when you click on a check now button, which, which you know, we just mentioned, yeah. is that it runs something like Sparkle. And I think everybody's familiar with Sparkle. This is... Everybody may be you, familiar with it, but, but they don't know what it's called. Developers know what Sparkle is called. And Spar- typically when you say check for update, uh, yeah, so it is a framework, shall we say, or yep. a SDK or an API that basically allows applications to phone home and say, hey, is there a new version? Oh, there is? Well, let me tell the user and then let me download it. Let me install it and restart the app. Yeah, and, and you've and all seen this, right? It, yeah, the app, it, the Sparkle is just the easy, it's a, it's a pre-existing framework that somebody released and any app developer for the Mac can use it. And it does just what John described. It's awesome. But, uh, but you may not know that it's Sparkle that's yeah. doing it. But it, so my it, expectation yeah, is when I click on check now, that it would do an online check to say, Hey, is there anything newer and offer to install it and then restart it possibly not to bring me to a web page that tells me that the version may or may not be, but because I had this happen once, as soon as I installed the pref pane, I was like, Oh, finally these guys did it right. And then it said in the pref pane, plug in version, whatever is installed. And I said, check now. And it brought me to their web page, and it told me there was a, a newer version. And I'm like, well, what the heck's the point of having it in the pref pane if I'm going to have to manually install it anyways. So it's Adobe. I know. And another thing. So, so to get to our point about the Adobe Reader. Now, this is even more befuddling, Dave. So in Adobe Reader, preferences, Internet. 
There is a checkbox here. Oh, that's right. Saying, so we're circling display, back to uh, to Wes, We are circling Wes's back question. because I found it, and okay. this is going to be another fish shape. So there is an internet preference, and there's a little checkbox next to something saying display PDF and browser. You know what, though? That selection is grayed out, and the checkbox is checked. <laughs> so you can't uncheck it? <laughs> and I even did some quick looking, and it was for an older version of Adobe Reader, and they kind of suggested... You know, if you want to disable this, so two things. One, they kind of suggested that if you have problems, the way to to uh, deal with it is basically what I suggested, which is to get rid of that plugin. But then they also said something which I hope they don't do, because then that'll make my suggestion incorrect. But but you suggested it, Dave, is that they, they claim to have an auto healing feature. And I certainly hope that when you start up the reader again, that they suggest maybe it's just this older version. I think it was version eight that I found the help file for. They say, oh, if we detect that that plugin's not there, we're, we're going to install it again. Oh, yeah, that's good stuff. Maybe if you get rid of it, then you can go to this setting in the reader and uncheck that box. Oh, I have to check that. I'm yeah. thinking, but it's, it's a, a, tangled, a tangled web here. So, so seeing a checkbox, but having it grayed out to me is, is infuriating. <laughs> yeah. Because especially a lot of times, if I hover over it, I expect it to tell me, well, here's the reason I'm not going to let you uncheck this. This is why I'm taunting you. Huh. All right. Uh, Joe writes, I've been experiencing sudden losses of Bluetooth about every seven to 10 days. Bluetooth is not restored by a restart, but is restored by a shutdown and immediate start back up. My question is, what happens when I shut down that doesn't happen when I restart? Okay. so uh, before I answer your question, before we answer your question, I want to point out Bluetooth is a. Connected to the USB bus. We've mentioned this before, and it's important to remember. Uh, so when you restart, uh, the difference between restarting and shutting down is the obvious one. Power is removed from the motherboard when you shut down. Now, that's not entirely true. The, the you know, the, the there, there's still the, uh, the, the the startup button and all that gets a little bit of power. But in a general sense, the motherboard has no power running to it when you do a shutdown. And that means all the devices on the motherboard, including the USB bus, are forced to completely reset. Uh, when you uh, restart, that doesn't necessarily happen. It does push a reset through, but uh, but not a cold power reset. And it sounds like you've either got something wrong with the USB bus or something wrong with the Bluetooth chipset that's attached to the USB bus. And uh and and it requires that it be, you know, cold powered down. I'd be curious if your problems went away putting your computer to sleep and then waking it back up. Now, USB stays semi awake during sleep because your mouse might might be there to wake the computer back up. But uh, but I'd be curious if if this change of of power state with that also fixed it. Uh, I don't know. John, you have any thoughts? I was looking and I don't see the settings anymore, but I, you know, Bluetooth, uh, I believe operates on, on frequencies similar to Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. And I thought there were, but, but I, th I thought it was more prone to, or less prone to interference and uh, getting disrupted. Yeah. <clears throat> but I just looked right now, at least on my mini, and I don't see any settings here that, that let you modify the behavior in any way. Right, right. Pretty much right. you can just pair with other devices, uh, which I think you should always do. All right. Um, let's go. Let's go to Michael. 
I, I like I like Michael here. Let's uh, and and John, you had a you had an interesting thing here. So Michael writes, I have a new iMac. Love the speed. I've been using it to put together a keynote presentation. I went to open it today and it crashed every time. The message reads, check with the developer to make sure Keynote works with this version of Mac OS 10. You may need to reinstall the application. Be sure to install any available updates for the application and also for Mac OS 10. I have reinstalled the program and get the same result. I'm using the latest version of Mac OS 10. Any ideas, John? And I had an idea. Go. So what I did is, fortunately, I saved... So, so this is a, this is a, I work, uh, Oh nine, I believe. Okay. Or keynote. Yeah. It was a, a prior version. Now, fortunately I kept it on my MacBook pro because in his, um, in his crash report, it actually listed the version of keynote and it listed something that's something that's something parenthesis and, you know, I, I guess a minor version update. And I compared what I saw in the crash report so crash report is very helpful if for no other reason than that. And I looked at my version and I'm like, ah, oh, they're the same. Great. Right. Now he says what he did. All right. So, so this is good. So he said he reinstalled the application. Here's what he didn't do though. What didn't he do? He didn't clean up the mess. <laughs> okay. Or he may have just run a reinstall, which would overwrite everything um, or most everything that was there. But I suspect it did not because I had two suggestions for him. Okay. So one was to kind of clean house. And uh, so I suggested, you know, either try uh, as a freebie, try app cleaner. Uh, you know, we, we went over these before, but I think the, yeah. the two best ones are app cleaner is a freebie and app delete has a trial, but it's a, it's a pay. I, I think app delete is the most comprehensive. So I said, you may want to try either one of those. Or there is, uh, I read of issue where people had issues with applying the latest iWork09 update and at support.apple.com slash download slash pound sign iWork is uh, the updates that you could manually download. So I gave him those two choices. Got it. And we got a reply. Fortunately, the first option worked. He said he ran app, app cleaner, reinstalled it, and it did not crash. So there must have been whether it was a preference or an application support file or something sure was screwed up. App cleaner was able to get rid of it. So the, awesome. that, that had a happy ending. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, the other two that I would recommend anytime we talk about app deleters is uh, hazel and also Mac keeper. If you have those, I, I believe the, the other ones are a little bit cheaper, but if you have hazel or Mac keeper, they do also have that functionality in them. So, uh, so you may, you, you may have something that, that does that in a very, fairly comprehensive way so already. So, yeah, the only other thing to mention, not every app does this, um, is that a lot of apps have it uninstalled. Typically they don't. So yeah, I, I, I think I would right. research and or invest in a, a app deleter of all the ones that, that we had mentioned. You know, I wonder if if checking the con I mean, clearly he had some file, presumably a corrupted file, but perhaps not. But but something that was causing this uh, to to get, you know, to, to crash. I wonder if looking in the console log would have kind of pointed him directly at, at that particular file. It, it's hard to say, but that that is yet another way of troubleshooting this and going and, and finding the needle as opposed to, you know, burning the haystack. So, uh. All right. Sue writes, uh, 
I'm getting ready for Lion, and I've looked in the system profiler and found two applications that will need to go. One was no problem. It likely came bundled with something I purchased. I pretty easily determined I never used it, so I was removed by zapping with AppZapper. The other one, thank heavens, only one more, I've never used, I know of, but uh, because it has Bluetooth in the name, I wanted to send you a screenshot before uh, uh, before I randomly just zapped it too. And and John, what is this called? You have the screenshot. You didn't share it with me, but uh, but you have the screenshot there, so you're going to look it up and, and tell me what it's called. Uh, well, it's, I can tell you right now. Go. Well, the item, yes. I'm going to call it an item for now, is called Bluetooth Regulatory Certification. And where was it stored on her computer? And it was stored in slash library slash document slash user guides and information, which is a place. Uh, I, I found a lot of older stuff in there. Okay. But, um, but, but there, are, there are quite a few documents or, or items in there. I'll leave it at that. Uh, do, do you have any more? Uh, she says, uh, it doesn't show up in my applications folder, so I would think it could just go. Can you please give me the all clear to remove it? If so, I'll be classic and power PC free. If not, what the heck do I need it for? The only Bluetooth devices I have are my magic mouse keyboard and magic trackpad. So go, John. All right. And you asked me to keep it brief and I'm going to keep it uh, brief as brief it. as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't want to this. This one could lead way out into the weeds. I will not go into the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So number one. So thank you, Sue, for sending a screenshot because so I looked at it. Bluetooth regulatory certification. Now, it may be misleading because in the finder in, in the column where it listed kind, it's it indeed said application. And just for kicks, I looked in the same folder on my machine, and I, saw, I also saw a couple of items that were listed as application. Now, isn't that kind of weird that in a user guides and information folder, you have applications? What's even stranger is if I double click it, it opens up in preview. It does not launch. And an that's the thing. So number one, because she sent a screenshot that showed the small icon and I looked at it and I'm like, you know what? That either looks like a PDF or an RTF. And sure enough, as you said, Dave, if you take these items and you double click on them, uh, uh, I, I found some that were PDFs and some that were RTFs and they would launch either in preview or I believe text edit. OK, so what's going on here? It, it, it's clearly a document, right? Well, clearly, really. Oh, now you would think if you double click on it and it launches in preview or it launches in text edit that it's a document, but it's not. Because if you right click on it, it'll oh, say it'll package. say show package contents. And I'm like, why? Because the document's not a package. Right. That's what, a package is when you have an application and you want to hide all of the ickiness inside of it. But here's the key is that it was a package and there was in or there is, in fact, an executable in there. I know what it do. I know what it's doing. I think I know what it's doing too. So here's the thing. So if you open the package, you're going to see two major pieces of it. One is going to be content slash Mac O Mac OS. And within that is a Unix executable file with the same name that you see in the finder. Right. But then there was another branch of the package content slash resources and then here's where it came to me. And then what you're going to see there is multiple folders. One of them is called English.lproj. Right. Another is called, um, well, that is the language. Right. 
And so, for example, in the Eng- English.l for, for in my case, I looked at something called iPod User's Guide. There was something called iPodUsersGuide.pdf. So I think what they're doing, though, I'm not sure who creates this. So actually, for the PDFs, it seems that they were created with FrameMaker. But I think what it is, is that that little application is selecting which of many in the other part of the package, uh, which language document to display. Yeah. So it's running the app very, very quickly and then launching preview with the one appropriate to the language set system wide. That's the the only conclusion I can come to. I... uh, I, I can't, uh, I don't know how to make these uh, again. The one, the it, one it, I'm it, seeing says it was, well, it says it was made with Acrobat distiller. Now this is the one called uh, welcome to leopard. Um, but, but that's just the PDF that was made with that. The, the app is probably something Apple cooked up. I, I would imagine just so you, so you get this PDF experience regardless of, of, your language choice. You know, it's bizarre about that. And so, so the listeners that see this, they're not crazy on my machine. I don't get a right click, uh, show package. Are you, option. are you running yeah. leopard? Yeah. Yes. I, snow leopard. So a snow leopard rather. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I'm looking right at the Bluetooth regulatory certification, right click it and show package contents is not an option. On is it listed as an application? It is not. Oh, well, so that then there then it's not a package. Then you oh, just well, have you the go. English oh. version. Oh, right. okay. So That's it. yeah. So here is the way to solve it. So the answer was uh, both the Finder and System Profiler are lying to you. It's not no. really an application. No, is it an is an application. application. It is an it application. Totally is. Here's the solution. And and this throw is, it away. It well, basically, <laughs> well, you can either throw it away if you don't care about Bluetooth, or you could dig into the package, copy the raw PDF, right. paste it onto your desktop, and then throw that out. Throw the the app out. Right, yeah, but your chances are you're never going to, I mean... No, is there a chance... See, I've never been a power PC guy, so is there a chance you guys have it as a legacy? I This machine, that yes, there it is. Okay. Because this OS migrated from a power PC iMac on my machine. Gotcha. Okay. So that, that could very well be why. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, because I have one called Welcome to Leopard, which of course was 10.5, and that machine ran 10.5. Oh, and I even have on my mini welcome to Snow Leopard. Okay. Same thing. And, Wait, and Snow, th- but that's not, if it's an application, I doubt that's a PowerPC app. Yeah, see, I have a welcome to Leopard app. Yeah. Which, uh, which no, this one's universal. It's got to be. No, nope, this one comes up. If I say get info, it says application universal. That's what I So think. the newer ones, yeah. yes. But the other thing with these is that it's a huge waste of space because right now, so welcome to Snow Leopard, it showed is shows in my finder is 154 megabytes. And if I show the package contents, I'm going to look at the uh, the raw very quickly. Let's see, English and the raw PDF is uh, 11 megabytes. Right. <laughs> so right. <laughs> well, it's it's a um it's a waste of space in that sense, but but it's an it's it's Apple's way of ensuring it. It's a waste of space only in the sense that all of the extra language files that you have installed everywhere on your Mac are a waste right. of space. And there's a good app for that. And and that monolingual. is monolingual. I believe yeah. Mac Keeper again will. will oh take yeah, care they of will. Packs. You're right. Yeah, but monolingual will do it. It's a single purpose app to get rid of all of that extra language stuff. And it's free. And it can it it can save you you know Gigabytes. close to yeah that's right yeah all right. Um, how are we doing on time here? I think we got time for a couple more. Let's, uh, let's do Austin. Um, 
Austin had an interesting one. Austin writes, I'm finding it here. I have two entries on my finder sidebar that no longer reference a folder in the file system. I thought this happened when I shuffled the file system and left the entries dangling, but I've not been able to reproduce the problem. When I move folders that appear as places in the sidebar or delete them, the sidebar seems to track that activity just fine. So I don't know what produced this problem. Further, I do not know how to remove the dead entries from the finder's sidebar. The right click menu for those items has only one option, and that is open sidebar preferences. There is no remove from sidebar item that uh, appears for everything else that's there. I know that a few shows ago, John talked about the plist file where this info is stored, but I can't find where that is in the archive and search didn't find it. How do I get rid of these things, John? And the way you get rid of these is, so, so I found it odd. I, I guess it's so corrupted that the remove from sidebar option will not come up because mm-hmm. normally it does. So right. it is in your home folder slash library slash preferences. And here's the file com.apple.sidebarlists.plist. And then within that file with, with whatever plist editor you would like to use, uh, the key is user items and then custom list items. And that will be a list of everything that is in your shared section. Right. And Austin got back to me. So it didn't take effect immediately. So he used plist editor Cut those two out. Cut the two bogus ones out. And they didn't disappear immediately, but when he restarted the system, I guess it rebuilt that list and everything's great. That's great. So Good. Good, good. Uh, all right. We have, uh, we have a comment from our last premium show. Pure Timo writes, uh, from uh, show 338, there are two more options for pasting text with formatting. In many apps, Command-Shift-V will paste the formatting of the destination, and that's the paste with the format. And then number two, another quick way to strip out the formatting is to paste the text into the Google search field in Safari and then copy it out again. And, you know, that would work with the search field in any app. Uh, so I had said launch something like Text Wrangler or BB Edit, paste in your form your text that with the formatting, then copy it and, and uh, out, and then it gets rid of it. But, yeah. The uh, the the search box in just about any app is a brilliant thing. I wonder if you could use the spotlight uh, search box at the top of the screen. And I also wonder if it would be possible for someone to make a little, uh, you know, maybe even a menu lit or something that or a, a tiny little app that you uh, that you launch and it takes the contents of the clipboard and scrubs them, uh, scrubs it of any uh, formatting. Wouldn't that be cool? That's uh, these are the things I think about in my, I was going to say my free time. Really? I'm just thinking about them now, you know? (laughs) Um, All right. And then, uh, and then let's go, let's go to Jeff. Jeff has uh, something very cool found called Toonspan and uh, it's available at toonspan.com. It is free. Uh, And what it lets you do is it will, allow you to store parts of your iTunes library on other drives. Uh, what you do is you store your iTunes library on your main drive, and then uh, it will start moving things depending on how often you, uh, you click the, you go into tune span and you say the span button and it, you can tell it to move tracks off of your main drive to some external drive or something. And, and this way you can have multiple 
you can have your iTunes library in multiple places. Um, it's, it's fascinating actually the way that it works and, uh, and it, it requires some, some manual management, but the magic that it does is it goes and modifies your iTunes library file to tell it where all these files are. So, uh, so you can wind up with, you know, you could have six different drives. Um, I, I, my guess is that anything new you add to iTunes still goes to the main drive. So you've got to kind of actively manage the stuff out of it. But, uh, but at least this automates the process of saying, I want to take, you know, these, uh, you know, 2000 songs and move them over to my, uh, you know, 2000 songs that I haven't listened to in two years. And I don't need with me when I travel and you move them off and, and off they go. So that's uh so tune span. It's free. Check it out. Anything else, John, before we, uh, before we start to wrap this one up, I think we're, I think we're getting pretty close on it. I got a cool stuff found question. Yeah, go ahead. Pete. What's that iPad app you're using? Uh, <laughs> so uh, Pete noticed when he got here today that there was no paper agenda sitting on the desk waiting for him. And he also noticed that I have no paper agenda. And indeed, uh, starting, and I haven't done it every show since this, but uh, starting with the show I did at WWDC when I could not print the show notes, uh, I like to, I like, I've mentioned this before, but I like to have a paper copy of the show notes so I can scratch off which, uh, or the agenda rather, so I can scratch off which ones we've done and, and manage that after the fact. And I really like doing it with, you know, a pencil or a pen in my hand and a piece of paper because I can write down little notes if things come up during the show and, uh, and that sure. sort of thing. So uh, what I did was I made a PDF of the show notes right? and I pulled that into Dan Bricklin's note taker HD. And so I have the PDF as the background in note taker. And then I Very can just cool. draw and I have one of these little, uh, you know, little stylus. Yeah. It's a, yeah. a pogo sketch. It was in the gimme bag at Macworld expo. I never thought I would use it. And then when I interviewed Dan Bricklin, I actually that I saw him the next day and I said, Hey man, you know what? When I did the podcast, I thought of you, I, I, I used note taker and, uh, and he said, that's great. And I even mentioned on the show, I think for those of you that listened to that one and, uh, and he said, did you use a stylus? And I said, no, but I have one. So I've been using it since. In fact, it, the only place I use it is here at the, uh, at the old podcast computer. So I leave it up here in the podcast studio and it just, uh, it works great. So cool. it's uh, yeah, it is. It's real. it's a really cool setup and I've found it. It, it, you know, it, it's not the way the iPad was intended to be used, but it's an awesome uh, use of the iPad. You need something like that. That's one of my things is you can't type meeting notes with a keypad and that sort of thing. So if you can scribble right onto a PDF, does it highlight too? Uh, I'm sure it could highlight. Yeah. I use, okay. I use all of about, uh, you know, 2% of what this software is capable of. Beautiful. Which is, you know, perfect for me. So that's, uh, that's that. Anything else, I was John? doing a uh, I, w- I was doing a uh, test of my uh, graphic subsystem on my MacBook Pro and my Mac Mini. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Team Fortress Two is free to play. Okay. I we told got, you. I gotta this. play this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my uh, my daughter's uh, gonna be visiting uh, other relatives next week, so it's just my son home with uh, with my wife and I. So it might be a good perf- a perfect time to check out Team Fortress with him. Yeah, it's a Valve game, and you know the the games I guess run on Mac and on PC, and and this one used to cost something. Now it's free, though that they, they have a store. They still want to rope you in. You can. The big thing seems to be hats. You can buy custom hats. All right. Well, I put it on the show notes. See, and I just scratched it out there, Pete. Beautiful. Yep, that's right. 
But uh, but it spun up the fa- it definitely spun up the fans when I played on the MacBook Pro. Though it was playable, but on the Mac Mini, uh, runs very smoothly. So it's now, what, a good gaming. Machine. Is your processor different on the Mini versus the Pro? I don't think so. No, but I think the graphics subsystem is uh, relatively... Uh, it, all, all I know is I could hear the fans spinning up, and I'm sure it's stressing the uh, the NVIDIA chipset in the MacBook Pro. Huh. I thought your MacBook Pro was... just tighter quarters. Yeah, it could, just be, you could be right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I feel the heat coming back of the exhaust in the Mini, but I, I can't hear the fans spinning. I can definitely hear the fans spinning on the MacBook Pro. Got it. Got it. Right, right, right. All right. Uh... Let's see. Let's first thank Michael Johnston, uh, the the Mac Geek Hub AAC converter guru, uh, as well as the host and founder of the We Have Communicators podcast. And also Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth for us. John, now that we've finished the show, if someone wanted to get in touch with us, what would they do? Well, if you're listening to this show, I would send an email to premium at MacGeekGab.com. Premium? At MacGeekGab? No, premium at oh. MacGeekGab.com. Yeah. <laughs> 206-666-GEEK is the number, and John Geek is? 4335. We got it right. Yay. Uh, you can Skype us to MacGeekGab. And uh, actually, uh, is there anything else? No, uh, Facebook. Oh, yeah. Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. That's right. I'm sure someday we'll have a, uh, a Google... Google Plus, yeah. Google Plus. There You're on that, I'm on that. I'm sure everybody will be on it. I, I, We've got invites for Google Plus. I don't know what... I don't know how many they'll limit us to, but if you want Google Plus invites, let us know. Send an email to premium at macgeekgab.com and one of us will, uh, one of us will get you one. I don't know what to think yet. I mean, it seems Facebook-ish. Yeah. It's a lot of the same people. It looks a lot. Way. It looks a lot like Facebook to me. I don't. Know, I just got on this morning because I was out all week. It was great. I'll talk a little bit about that uh, that that fish festival I went to. There's a there's a a couple of uh, technically related, technically relevant things to uh, to mention. But uh, we'll do that on Monday's show because we got another one coming up three forty one on Monday. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, John. I think that's it. Is there more? There's got to be more. Well, Twitter, I'm John F. Braun. He's David Hamilton. He's Pilot Pete. The podcast is MacGeekGab. MacGeekGab, that's right. Uh, and Mac Observer. We will do a contest for the uh, for a six-month free uh, coupon for MacGeekGab Premium. And the question is, I realize there are two REM songs that, uh, that quote our favorite catchphrase. So you have to tell us what two REM songs it is that say don't get caught. <laughs> <laughs>